Did you know that in your life, on average in Australia, I googled it, you will work, I knew it, 13 years and two months? Yeah, you're like, that's okay, that's, yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, if, if that was like 24 hours a day constantly working, like that you, you'd be there at work for th- 13 years, uh, two months, which adds up to um, about 15,000 hours of work. Isn't that, isn't that a lot of work? 15,000. Yeah, you're like that. Yeah, that's it. Chuck it into America and you're like, oh gosh. Yeah, 26. Yeah, well done. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> I was sleeping. <laughs> um, that's a huge amount of work and a huge amount of our lives. Tonight, um, we are talking about work and we're going to jump into the book of Ecclesiastes. Paige is going to read that for us in just a moment. Um, but there's a couple of words in there that you just need to um, be aware of that are just a little bit odd. Um, toil. Um, when it, it speaks about toil, I think when he uses the word toil, he's not just talking about uh, hard labor. I think he's talking about everything that has to do with the realm of work. That's, uh, I just want to kind of clarify that. Um, and the word eternity sneaks in there. And often when we think about eternity, especially in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, we're thinking about like forever and ever and ever. I think when he's using the word eternity here, um, he's trying to get us to picture something bigger, something grander, something holy, something sacred, everything that kind of reminds us of God. So I, th- I think that's just two little clarifications that'll make sense as you read it. That's it. Over to page uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Follow along in your Bibles if you have an app. I'll give you this. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift from God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. Thanks, Paige. That was, <clears throat> that was Ecclesiastes 3 verses 9 to 15. Um, if you want to keep following along, we're going we're gonna to jump back to that a little bit. Um, and I guess the, the question we want to tackle tonight is, um, why do we work? Like, wh- what is it? Why, why do we do it in the fir- first place? Aside from making money, like, is there is there intrinsic value in, in what we actually do? And I think for me, um, this came from a particular angle, which isn't, uh, isn't super common in society, because I was raised in a very Christian bubble, very Christian family. And in that kind of environment, it was, you know, we're, we're all going to die anyway and go to heaven and uh, or whatever afterlife there is. And then what does it even matter that we did on earth except that we told everyone about Jesus? That, w- that was kind of the only thing that mattered. And so there was this hierarchy of ideas where, like, if you were in pastoral ministry, you were like a king. Um, but if you weren't, well, you were just second rate. Um, like, nothing bad about you. It's just, you know, you know. And that was kind of the mindset that I had for a long time growing up. I don't, I don't hold that now, just so you know. Um, uh but it was just kind of a, a natural progression from my theology, the way that I was thinking. Um, and the other angle that we look at it from is 
sometimes work is just hard. Um, sometimes it's miserable. Um, and I know that there's people in our community who are overworked and underpaid uh, or who are struggling to find work or who, uh, who have not as much work as they actually need to get through the day. Um, and it just gets really complicated um, and really hard and exhausting. And when we think of work, we think of struggle. We think of that word toil. We think of the, the word oh, exhaustion. Um, and so I guess what I want to do today is wind back a few of those ideas, look at it from two different lenses, one from Ecclesiastes, one from Genesis, um, and share just some things that I've been reflecting on, and I hope they're helpful. Um, I kind of, I, I find them quite exciting, actually, when I think about it. For those who um, are wondering, you probably aren't, but I'll tell you anyway, this is where I work, this this school, um, and actually, I just saw my boss. He's not supposed to be here on weekends, but he's here. Um, <laughs> um, uh, this is, and, and I love working here. It's a phenomenal place to work. It's got some really cutting-edge kind of programs going on. Um, the environment, it's a school for kids who are really struggling in the mainstream setting, and so we only have 25-ish kids here. On any given day, we might have kind of 6 to 15 because a, a, a lot aren't present. Um, and they're kids who just have a lot going on in life. Um, and so work for me here is exciting, but it's also really exhausting. Um, and Thomas will know that I get home at the end of the day and I just kind of share the stories of what happened that day, uh, whether that's things that are going on in kids' lives or um, you know, bricks that were thrown at me. or like I, ju- I just share what, what is taking place uh, because it's a really complicated place to work, but also really good. Um, and for me, I find going into each day with a good mindset about why I work is so important. Because I can tell you now, no one at this place works for the money um, that, that wouldn't cut the mustard. Um, and so having a good understanding of why it is that I toil in the first place is really helpful. Um, let's cast our minds then back to Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 1, if you're familiar with it, it's the opening pages of the Bible. And it starts this grand narrative. And it's a narrative that will flow on through the rest of the Bible, uh, right on through to Revelation. And it's a narrative of uh, creation, God creating the world, making it beautiful. Uh, Something goes wrong and there is this brokenness that is in the world. And then there is this process of trying to work out, well, how do we actually live in this world and follow Jesus in this world through to Revelation. And that's where it ends with a new creation, kind of justice has been ushered in. That, that's, the, that's the grand storyline of the Bible. Ecclesiastes kind of sits over here somewhere because um, it doesn't fit in this neat narrative. Um, it's, it's what we would call wisdom literature, um, in the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, it sat under a category called the writings. Um, and it sits with kind of, uh, if you know, Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs. They're stories, no, they're, they're, they're books that don't fit in the natural storyline of the Bible because they don't ask, okay, what is God doing across eternity? They ask, what is God doing on Tuesday? Um, like, what, what does it actually look like for me to exist here in this space right now? So Ecclesiastes and Genesis, I think, provide two really helpful frames. Genesis opens with God forming. Uh, if you remember, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Kaz spoke about the cosmogenies, the, the, uh, the narratives of the creation of the world, and it starts with water, uh, water covering the surface of the land. And you remember the word that, we use to describe that water, word chaos. 
chaos is a, a huge theme throughout the Bible. Um, and the image that we get is that the, the, la- the, the world... That was close. The world was covered in chaos. Um, it, was, it was just this, this mess of water, just raging and seething and teeming. And, and the water was, uh, was this place of rage and, um, and disaster everywhere. There was nothing ordered about it. And out of that land, uh, sorry, out of that water, God formed land. Um, and so he brought order to chaos. But the land was still quite wild, and so God creates a garden, um, and he, he brings order out of chaos. And then God creates humanity, and he calls humanity to the task of tending the garden, to the task of bringing order out of chaos. Um, and so one way to think about humanity is uh, our role is to bring order out of chaos, um, just as God brings order out of chaos. Uh, the God that we serve is a God who brings order out of chaos. So I'm going to bring some order out of chaos right now. Watch me. Watch me. <laughs> um, I hadn't thought about this very well. Um, just going to bring some order out of chaos. Um, that was just sitting in the sun. It was going to get hot. Yeah, that was it. That was it. I did it. I wrote order out of... Um, what I just did was a sacred act. I'll just leave that one there. Um, what I just did was an act of holiness, I, I, I think. Um, what I just did was... Uh, it, it, like, that's the word for it. It's a sacred act, what I just did. Um, not, in a, like, not in a lame, dumb way. Um, but in an actually really profound, true way. Like, I'm not making a joke here. I, I think that what I did was actually quite sacred. Um, let me prove that, because you're just looking at me like, I'm an absolute idiot, <laughs> like, which is fair enough. Um, maybe I am. Um, how do, uh, okay, I think the best way to describe it is by going on a little historical excursus. Um, uh, and this is going to take a little while, so bear with me. But I want, I want to... I want to show you that I think that what I just did truly is sacred. Um, let's begin 312 AD. The Emperor Constantine, the Emperor of Rome, becomes Christian. He converts to Christianity. And along with that, the entire Roman world becomes Christian. Um, now, I have my questions about that. Um, but essentially, the Roman world becomes a holy Roman nation. That, that, that's how they start describing themselves. And in that moment, Christianity becomes exceedingly powerful. If you are a Christian, you are a person of power in some sense. Now, that, uh, that trajectory will keep going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And the church becomes more and more and more powerful. Um, so much so that, um, you know, you have these great instances where um, the, uh, the Pope has so much power that when the King of England attempts to uh, bring in a new archbishop, kind of the, the head of the church in England, the Pope offers an interdict on all of England. This happens kind of in early thousands. Um, 
offers an interdict on all of England. Now, that means that none of the clergy are allowed to perform their vital roles. Now, in that realm, in the Catholic Church at the time, if you were a clergy, you performed all the rites, and that they allowed people to get into heaven. So essentially, what the Pope did was uh, sent everyone to purgatory for an undetermined amount of time. Because he could. Like, it was just like, no, I don't, I don't want you to put that person there. So he just did it. Um, uh, another time, uh, one of the kings, King Henry VII, I think it was, pissed off the Pope, Pope Gregory. Um, and he desperately wanted forgiveness. And so he went and begged for three days in the Swiss Alps um, outside, begging the Pope for forgiveness because the Pope had excommunicated the king from the church. Like this, this is the amount of power that the Catholic Church had at the time, the Catholic Church being the entire church at, at the time. Um, he excommunicated the king. Now, if you're excommunicated, it means that you don't get your last rites in the Catholic Church. And so you're banished to hell. That's and, and, and so the king is bowing to the feet of the Pope, saying, I need you to take me back in. Um, just huge amounts of power. Power, 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 power. And the church by this stage is extraordinarily wealthy. Um, the church rules every element of society. And I use that word rule truthfully like that they have so much sway in what goes on in every part of the world now alongside this there's another narrative that's starting to unfold i'm just going to get a drink it's exciting stuff and i'm getting parched (laughs) you agree with me it's exciting um alongside this there's another narrative that's starting to unfold because people are looking at what's happening in the church and they're starting to say, actually, no, that's, that's not the way of Jesus. Um, that, that's not how Jesus interacted with the world. And so rather than rule over society, they do something else, which I don't think is what Jesus did, but this is how they saw it and this is how they interpreted it, and they withdrew from society. And so they went into deserts, they went into the wilderness, and they built really high walls. And they started to practice what it meant to exclude yourself from the world and all its evilness. Um, They built high walls with thick doors. They started singing no worldly songs. They only sang Christian songs. They only meditated in silence and prayerfulness. They ate simply. They worked simply. Uh, And it's it's the birth of the modern-day monasteries. Um, These are what we would later call monks or nuns. Um, And they... They wanted nothing to do with the world. And so these, this group of people, we started to call them the Sacres, um, the Sacres of society. They were the ones who had become holy. And, and we started to make a bit of a separation between the Sacres and the Saculums. The Saculums were everyone else outside of these big walls of the monasteries. Um, the Saculum became anything that wasn't within the confines of a monastery. Um, so you had in the monastery your, your chanting, your religious writings, your Bible reading, your religious art. And then out in the world, you had your saculum, you had your farming, childbirth, sex, reading, 
Netflix. Like you, you just had everything that that wasn't. Does that make sense? The, the sacres and the saculums. Um, now language would kind of evolve, and we would eventually have a really sharp divide between the sacred and the secular. The sacred and the secular, and and I think we still have that in our world. We have a division between what is considered sacred and what is considered secular. Um, one way to think of it would be like two big baskets. Um, you have a big basket in which you put all your church stuff. That is what we're doing right now. Uh, we are gathering. It is sacred. Uh, we, in another era, might sing songs together, church music, uh, music which is all about Jesus. It typically has four chords and an easy progression. Like uh, it, It's sacred music that we, we have. Um, and in the other basket comes tomorrow, uh, what you do when you go to work. Um, and that's when the, the secular starts. Um, and the baskets are really strict, um, especially in our world at the moment where uh, faith is not to invade politics or the private life is not to invade the public life because that's unprofessional. Um, it's a really strict barrier between the two baskets. Now, the problem that I have with that is that it's thoroughly unbiblical. Um, and I, I, personally, I'm just I, like, I think the Bible has a better picture. Um, and this is something that I think the Reformation really got right when it came along. And it looked at these two things that were happening in the church. The power structures of the church at the time and the extreme resistance that the church was showing to anything in culture at the time. Uh, Martin Luther, a guy uh, around 1400, came along and said, wait a minute, there's a different way to look at the world, perhaps a more biblical way to look at the world Um, we could, when it came to these baskets, we could try and like get rid of the division and just merge them all together. That's one way we could solve this problem. Or we could pick up all that is sacred and say, you know, what you're doing at church isn't that special. Like it's not that crash hot. Look around. You're a motley crew. Um, Like we could just take all that and pour it into the secular basket and say, Look, it's all, it's all just one and the same. The problem I have with that is that also isn't particularly biblical. Um, here's what Luther did, um, which I think was spot on. He took the secular basket and he picked it up and he poured it all in the sacred basket. And he said, everything is sacred. Everything is Holy. Because when God created the cosmos, he created the cosmos as his temple. And the temple of God is a holy place. The temple of God is a sacred place. And so when we read the book of Genesis, we're supposed to be seeing God actually creating a temple that God can dwell in. And the temple is holy. The temple is sacred. And so the grass that we sit on is sacred. Um, The air that we breathe is holy. Um, It's all a product of a holy God speaking sacredness into creation. This is what Luther said. Um, The entire world is full of service to God. Not only the churches, but also the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, the fields of the townsfolk and farmers. Is that making sense so far? 
So I think what 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 Luther did, and what I think is just so helpful, is he he took anything that didn't feel particularly religious, and he picked it up, and he said, actually, that's a really religious experience. If only we have eyes to see it. Uh, what we're doing is a holy task. Whether you're uh, you know, filling your day with pottery or sewing or policy writing or researching church movements across the world or tutoring students or making blinds, what you're doing is holy work. Is that making sense? Yeah, cool. Um, Okay, with all that in mind, let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Because remember I said um, Ecclesiastes sits kind of outside that big storyline. And it it gives us another perspective. Um, The book of Ecclesiastes constantly makes this assertion that life is fleeting. Um, In the NIV, it's translated as meaningless. Um, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. You might have heard that phrase. Um, Another way of interpreting that word is fleeting. Um, it's, It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's so, so temporary. Um, and so it's interesting that in this book that is so adamant that life is fleeting, the author says uh, that we see a God who has woven eternity into the hearts of humanity. Um, a God that has woven an understanding of the divine, um, an understanding of the sacred, an understanding of something bigger, transcendent, into the very fabric of our day-to-day life. Um, it, it's, it's fundamentally a part of who we are. And I think uh, I see this when I see people uh, seeking the spiritual. Um, that is such a, um, such a defining aspect of my generation as I look around. People seeking something deeper, something more profound. They're, I think they're tired with the... the um, the easy answers that, I don't know, maybe the Enlightenment, I'm not sure, has just given. And so they're starting to look for a deeper meaning. Um, Somehow, God has woven into us a desire for something bigger, transcendence. Um, And so because of that, um, that knowledge of the sacred of the eternal, the author declares, I know, in verse 12, that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. Because, because we know about this eternal, um, I know, says the author, that there's nothing better for people than to, do, than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them, in verse 13, may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Um, that's a gift. Um, it is a gift of God that we have the chance as humans to eat and drink and be merry. It's a gift of God that we actually get to take part in the process of bringing order out of chaos. Um, to partner with God as vice regents, perhaps as, as co-workers in this world of bringing goodness to existence. And so a biblical view of work, okay, this is, this is where the rubber hits the road for tomorrow as you go into whatever it is that tomorrow has for you that isn't sacred. It's secular, but it is sacred. Um, what, whatever it is tomorrow that you have going on that is sacred, a biblical view of the world says that we 
in whatever we're doing, are partaking in the process of bringing order. And that in itself has deeply intrinsic value. Uh, that in itself has deeply intrinsic value because in that moment, we are existing in the image of God. I think that's why we work. Um, we work because God works. Um, have you ever noticed that in the Garden of Eden, that, that snapshot of what perfection should like look like uh, Adam and Eve were put to work. Um, they weren't just resting. It wasn't kind of this eternal Zen state. Um, they were actually working hard. And I trust that in the new creation, um, when, when this world in all of its pain and hardship and toil has disappeared, I trust that we'll still be working. Um, we'll still be taking part in work. Um, and I wonder how you find that. Do you find that liberating? Um, is that something liberating for you, or do you find that intimidating? Perhaps um, does it make you work harder because you realize that oh, this work, whatever it is, whether it's uh, sweeping or accounting, it has intrinsic value. Or perhaps for some of you, it actually makes you work less hard uh, because you recognize that. Uh, we don't work for getting money, um, or we don't work for our own esteem, or we don't work for the value of others. We work because just work in itself has intrinsic value. Um, is it possible to strive for excellence simply because we have an excellent God? Um, are these questions making sense? They're, they're all part of how... I, I think a, a genuinely Christian worldview takes part in the world, um, actually exists in our society. And so let me, um, I, I've thrown so many questions out there. Um, I'm going to finish with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and after this, I'm just going to pray um, and wrap up. Um, but let me read it to you and just meditate on what, what Dr. King is saying. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, go out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have pause to uh, will have to pause and say here lives a great street sweeper who swept his job well let me pray for us god you are the one who brings order out of chaos you do that because that is who you are. And God, in that grand narrative of creation, you draw us in to be co-workers alongside you, to continue the process of tending the garden, of bringing order out of chaos. And God, for so long in our churches, we have 
we've forgotten the fact that this world is sacred, that the smallest act of taking part in your creation is actually a holy act. And God, everything that we do, everything that we, everything that we take part in um, is holy because you have made it and you are holy. Um, and so God, we want, we want you to permeate everything that we do. Uh, and God, this gives so much value to what we do day to day, week to week. And it speaks so powerfully against the value of, uh, of money, the value of the opinions of others, the value of our own self-esteem driving it so that we can just um, prove to ourselves that we are good enough because the reality of all this is that we are good enough, um, that we are sacred, that we are holy. Um, and so God, we... Pray that we would be a church, that new city, a church that works hard because you are a God who works hard, that strives for excellence because you are a God who strives for excellence, um, a, a church that, uh, that loves because you love. And so, God, we, uh, yeah, we just lift up our own workplaces to you and we take a moment just to think of what our work situation looks like at this point in time And God, we just hand it over to you and trust that you have us in the right place. Amen.